Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. We are continuing our series in the book of Zechariah, trying to strike the balance of being detailed, but at the same time moving us quickly. Uh, You say, why do we have to move so quickly? It's simple because Pastor John told us that he's going to be preaching on Zechariah, so we need to finish before he begins. (laughs) It's a race to the finish. So every Sunday, I just pray that he gets more caught up in Ephesians. (laughs) Buys us as much time as possible. No, it'll be a blessing. Actually, he did preach years ago in the 70s, if my memory serves me correctly, in Zechariah. It was about 20-something messages. Uh, So he'll do that again. Probably it'll be 40, um, and it'll be really good. So we're just trying to kind of lay a foundation in, in way of him in a good sense. Well, in any case, by now you should be at Zechariah chapter 2. And as we look at Zechariah chapter 2, we are going to, as we see throughout the entire book of Zechariah, be discussing promises concerning the nation of Israel. This is about their future. This is about their destiny. This is about what will take place for the city of Jerusalem. And in light of these realities, people often ask, why Israel? They wonder about the nation, and they wonder about God's promises to them, especially since over and over and over the focus of the Old Testament is upon this specific country. And in light of the promises given, in light of all the concentration and discussion, sometimes people wonder, how does this relate to us? How does this come to our world? Has the church in that way superseded or replaced Israel? And the answer to that is no, God is faithful to his people, and we can see that as the word is consistently used, that is the word Israel is consistently used to refer to a certain group of people from Old Testament to New Testament. But in answering that and establishing that, people ask the question, why? Why Israel? Why didn't God choose the Americans? Why didn't God choose the Babylonians? Why didn't God choose the Chinese? Why this specific people? But really what we're asking, if we really stop and think about it, is why not me? That's what we're asking. Because though we might be Calvinists, though we believe in election, though we believe in the frozen chosen, though we believe in all those that God has foreordained and predestined, we still don't like it when we're not the chosen ones. And this is the issue. And that is the issue, the heart issue that must be debunked. We still have this innate selfishness. And though we don't apply it into so many areas of life, for some reason we apply it to this. We don't say these words to people. People say, would you like to come to my wedding? Well, I'm not the one getting married. So no, I don't like to come. We don't say that. (laughs) And when people invite you to a birthday party, you don't say, well, it's not my birthday, so I don't really care. (laughs) And if you really took the logic out fully, people would say things like this. Well, if it's not my funeral, I'm not going. And in response to that, if you thought that was legitimate logic, let me just remind you, if it is your funeral, you're not going to be there either. (laughs) We need to remember we rejoice with those who rejoice. And most of all, we rejoice with God. That's the point. He's the point. We love 
what God loves, period. We love what God accomplishes, period. And even when it's not us, as long as it is our God doing it, and as long as he is honored, and as long as his glory is magnified and put on display, that's enough for us. We rejoice, we revel, we worship in it. We love it. It doesn't have to be us. And as long as it's about God, we Adore that because we adore him. And that's what we need to understand when we hear the story of Israel. It doesn't have to be our story. We don't have to be the direct recipients of everything that they receive. But as long as we see God on display, and as long as we see God victorious, and as long as we see God faithful, that's enough for us. Because it's always been about our God. And there are reasons that God has, there are purposes that God has for the nation of Israel. Why did God choose Israel? Ultimately, we don't know. We learn that truth that we don't know in Deuteronomy 7 because God revealed to Israel in that passage. He said, it was not because you were the most mighty. It was not because you were the most numerous. It was not because you were the best. It was not because you were the most lovely that Yahweh set his love on you. Why did he do it? Because he did. That's the only answer. Because he did. That's it. It is for the sake of his name in that sense. But there are some promises and there are some prophecies and there are some purposes that God has for his people. And let me just give you five very quickly that God has and why he uses Israel and why he gives them in that context, in the context that we're in, these special promises. One, God raised up Israel to be witnesses about him to the nations, to the world. This is a nation to make an international impact. We see that in Genesis 11 and 12. Genesis 11, you have the scattering of the people to produce nations from the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 12, you have the genesis of a nation. You have the beginning of a nation to witness to and give testimony to all those nations. It's for this very reason. In Exodus chapter 19, Israel is called a kingdom of priests. They are meant to minister to all the nations. So they, number one, are a witness of him to the world. Second, they are those who preserve God's word. They are those who preserve God's word. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God. They preserve God's word. Third, they are a demonstration of God's judgment of sin. You don't have to read very much of the Old Testament to figure that out. Almost every single page of the Old Testament is a constant reminder that God judges sin. And who takes the brunt of that? Who's the top illustration of that? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. But at the same time, number four is this. It's not just about judgment. It's about grace. Israel is one of the most beloved illustrations, the the most pivotal and dramatic demonstrations of God's grace. You think about the book of Exodus and Israel, when they worshiped the golden calf, they really essentially broke all 10 of the 10 commandments and they deserved to die. They knew they should die. They knew at that moment of their existence, it should end. And that testifies to point three. There is judgment. There will be the prime illustration of judgment. But for that very reason, they lived because God said, I want to show you my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, 
slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and grace. That's who our God is. And he shows it in a people that by all accounts and by all mechanisms should die, but they live. Just by way of illustration of that further, sometimes when I teach the class History of Ancient Israel, we play a game. The game is called Conquer the Holy Land. And the game, I made it up. It is a mix of Risk and Settlers of Catan, if you're familiar with board games. And the idea is to simulate what it would be like to conquer the Holy Land with different nations and all this kind of stuff. And of course, everyone knows their Bible, hopefully at the Master's University. So they all want to be Israel. Everyone wants to be Israel. I love it. And so I say, sure. And who gets to have that privilege? And so we play a couple rounds of Bible trivia, and then the winner of that gets to become Israel. Now, statistically speaking, as you play this game, Israel is wiped off the face of the map within two turns. Just can't win. There's just no way. You have no military. You're technically, technologically disadvantaged. You have no resources. You have no land. You're in the, you're in the midst of invasion. And all these other countries, they, they've got everything. And so you're wiped off the map. And, and people say, but that's not in the Bible. And I say, that's the point. That's what should have happened. But God had grace. And now you know, were it not for God, that would have happened. And then they say, well, we can't play the game anymore. So I reincarnate them as Edom. <laughs> it's a twin. And we go from there. There's a witness about God. There's the preservation of God's word. There's judgment demonstrated. There's grace. And the pivot point, the, the pinnacle point of all that is point five. They demonstrate the way of salvation. They point to the Messiah. They preserve the line of the Messiah They show the entire plan of redemption. They show exactly how salvation is to work. That's what they're entrusted with. There is no more important message. That is a highly pivotal, mission-critical purpose to everyone's eternity. And those are just some of the ways that God uses Israel. And in using them in these ways... He gives them promises. He gives them privileges. And the privileges and the promises are to facilitate and bolster and to be instrumental in accomplishing those purposes that I just listed. But simultaneous to this, and please do not miss it, what it shows to all of us and testifies to all of us is that God doesn't just use people. He loves them. God could have said, you are this instrument, you have this purpose, I'm just using you, and that's it, and I don't really care about you. God has the right to do that. He is the potter, we are the clay, but our Lord does not do that. He says to this people, I will use you, and you will be for generations put through different circumstances, both glorious and both tenuous, and because I have set my love on you, you will be blessed in the end. I could just use you. I could just throw you away like trash in the end. That's what we all deserve. But our God doesn't do that. When he uses a people, even though they don't deserve it, he still blesses them anyway. Because our God is not like a man who just uses and manipulates people for his own end, and that's it. Our God is truly the God of love and faithfulness, who will use people 
for his glory and for their good. That's a good God. That's a good God. And so as Zechariah opens, Israel has had a history. Israel has had a history of disobedience. Israel, by all accounts, from a human and fleshly perspective, they should not have their promises anymore. Any sane human person would say to Israel, you don't deserve it. You've lost it. You got rid of it. You relinquished it. It's over. But in Zechariah, the very name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And God says, you haven't lost a thing. I haven't forgotten anything. I haven't relinquished it all. And in one night, a single night, you wonder if Zechariah ever got rest during this evening at all. He has eight visions. Eight. They're intense. It will take us perhaps a semester to unpack what he experienced in eight hours. Assuming that's how long he slept. Maybe he only slept for an hour. We don't even know. But it will take, they are intense. They are rigorous, these visions are. And we have covered the first two. And the first vision reminds us in context that Yahweh, he remembers his plan. Yahweh has not forgotten. Though the world may seem to be still, there is a supernatural work in play where God is working behind the scenes and really in the scenes, in the supernatural way, the way, the place where it is most essential to be working, the place where it is most effective to work, and God is at work there. He has not forgotten his promises. It says in the first vision that though there are the place was still, then the angel of Yahweh pleads for his people. The angel of Yahweh is Christ. Christ has always been interceding for his people. And so you think nothing is happening, but yet everything is happening because Jesus is pleading for his own. Likewise, in the second vision, though it seems like there is nothing happening, God says he remembers. He remembers what he prophesied in Daniel. He remembers that he has a plan for every nation, and that plan has one destiny, that there will be one craftsman to rule them all, and that craftsman is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will destroy all the rest of the horns, and he will remain, and his kingdom will remain forever. Israel, do not lose heart. God's people, do not lose heart, because God has a plan, and he hasn't forgotten it. He has not forgotten it. And in this third vision, what God does now, having talked about his plan in general, having talked about his plan for all the nations in history, he now focuses on Israel itself and says, I I know I've made some promises to you guys specifically, to this nation particularly, and now he will address those promises. And in doing so, here's the lesson to be learned. The lesson to be learned is that God will do above and beyond what we ever could imagine or think. That is what he tells Zechariah. He doesn't just tell Zechariah, I remember, I got the list. He tells him, you don't even know the half of it. You don't even understand all that I promised you. I promised you, and I'm not going to change that. But on top of that, I'm going to do so much more. So much more is entailed and included within his promises, and he will reveal that to the prophet to reveal to all of us. It truly is what Ephesians 3.20 says, to the one who can do more than we ask or think. That's what we'll see. And you might say, is that practical? Well, yes, fundamentally, knowing that this is our God. Even though we might not receive these exact 
promises directly, knowing that this is our God who makes promises like this, who has faithfulness like that, that is encouraging. But chapter 2, and we are covering the entire chapter 2, second chapter of Zechariah today, it reminds us that there are practical implications, practical ramifications of understanding the hope that God gives. For one, there will be sanctification. There will be sanctification. You could think of it this way. How do you escape worldliness? You think about the world to come. That's how you escape worldliness. You want to escape worldliness? Think about the world to come. And that is the logic of Zechariah chapter 2. And on top of that, when you are so captured with the promises of God and the God who makes those promises, you will both sing and you will be silent. You will both sing and you will be silent. So we are talking about the promises of God made to Israel this morning. They are supreme promises that go above everything that we have ever heard and everything that Israel had heard up to that point. And that is practical because it bolsters holiness. It bolsters worship. And all of that is because of what God has promised to his people and that that goes beyond what we could ask or think. We have supreme promises that lead to our sanctification. Supreme promises that lead to our sanctification. And the second chapter of this book then, which covers the third vision of the eight visions that Zechariah had in one night, breaks down into three parts that instruct us about those very supreme promises. Second, it instructs us about our sanctification. And third, it even motivates our worship as it compels us to sing and to be silent. Three parts. And let's talk about the first part now. Supreme promises. God makes promises to Israel that goes beyond what we could ask or think. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw the vision now shifts to another vision. This is the third vision. And behold, there was a man with a measuring cord in his hand. Verse 1. I call this man that Zechariah beheld the measuring man, because he's a very familiar individual. In fact, if you've read through prophecies before, and if you will read prophecies after, you're going to meet the measuring man. In Ezekiel chapter 40, the measuring man first appears, and like the name suggests, guess what he was doing? Measuring. It's the same individual. And you say, well, who is this measuring man? Who is this person particularly? Well, The only other usage in Zechariah of the term man thus far has referred to one riding on the red horse, the final Adam, the last man, the ultimate son of man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. This individual seems to be the same person. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, even in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40, verse 3, the man, the measuring man there, is compared to one who goes in Ezekiel chapter 8 into the very glory of God and partakes of the very glory of God. That can be no normal man. You can't just go into the glory of God. Even the Greeks knew that, as we heard this morning. You see Zeus, who doesn't exist, and you're incinerated. What do you think you actually would do and become if you met God and his true glory face to face? We would also be incinerated in true fashion. And in that way, in Ezekiel, it has already been made clear that the measuring man is the second person in the Trinity. Likewise here, in Zechariah 2, verse 1, this measuring man, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder When we talk about prophecy, and when we talk about 
the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the fulfillment of issues and matters for God's people Israel and the city that he has chosen, it is always driven by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is always driven by his son. This is about ultimately not a nation, but about the king of that nation, that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. And so there is a man with a measuring cord in his hand. And given the language and given the reality, here's what's fascinating. And isn't that God was just showing Zechariah what he showed Ezekiel, the same phenomena, the same building or the same city that would be in the future. Given the fact that the same guy appears with the same context, with the same everything, arguably Zechariah is caught up in this vision in the very same vision that Ezekiel saw. They're the same thing. He's seeing the same thing play before his eyes. And at this moment, here's the question. As he is caught up in the same vision, seeing the exact same thing as Ezekiel, the question is, in light of all that has been happening in Israel's history of unfaithfulness, are you going to change your mind on this, God? Are you going to change the terms and conditions of this promise? Are you going to alter anything that you told Ezekiel? Are you going to modify in any single way to the detriment of God's people what you originally guaranteed and revealed? Verse 2, so I said, where are you going? Because that's the question. What are you about to do? Are you about to change the dimensions? Are you about to change the structure? Are you about to change the prophecy that was originally seen in this very vision? And what does verse 2 say? And he said to me, to measure what? Jerusalem. Everything is exactly what was said in Ezekiel. Even the very words, these very words, are the same words found in Ezekiel, to see how wide it is. Ezekiel will talk about that extensively, and to see how long it is. Ezekiel will use that same word. What is God telling the prophet Zechariah? Everything you heard, everything that was said in Ezekiel, everything that was revealed there, even the width and even the length, not one thing is changing. Everything is the same. And this is the baseline of the promises of God. This is the baseline of why God's promises are more than we ask or think. It's simple, because God doesn't change them. Because God doesn't change them. For those who are wondering if God will still guarantee this to Israel, Zechariah 2 is the testimony that God reaffirmed, even though when given opportunity to demonstrate that there could be alteration, that there could be deviation, he does not. He does not. These promises are sure for Israel, but even more and equally, it speaks to his character. Do you understand the glory of the promises of God? It's simple. He doesn't change them. He doesn't change them. When we talk about destiny and when we talk about what will happen to every saint and what is promised to every saint in the scripture, what is so encouraging is that's the way it will be. That's the way it will be. This is not a bait and switch. This is not a change. Because our God does not change. Our God does not change. That's the baseline of it all. But of course, we need to go beyond that. And speaking of going beyond that, we need to get to verse 3. Verse 3. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out. You know what we call that? Rude. All of us, 
all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, you're remeasuring with measuring man, Jerusalem. You're having the time of your life seeing every single promise that God made in Ezekiel affirmed, and the guy just leaves. And you just think, we just got here. We just started, and you're leaving? Even more, think of it this way. Sometimes parents tell their rebellious teenagers, hey, I'm not done talking with you. Come back here. Here, Zechariah is saying, you're not done talking with me. Why are you leaving? It's totally inverse. What is this guy doing? So rude. Well, there's a reason why all of a sudden, in the middle of everything, the conversation gets cut short. The angel is going out. It's to catch Zechariah's attention. There must be something so important about to happen. There must be something so amazing about to happen that you would cut your own sentence short, that you would cut yourself and interrupt yourself in your own vision just to communicate something. There is a reason why the angel was going out. It's the same reason, verse 3, another angel was coming out to meet him. You have measuring man, and then you have another angel sent by Yahweh to meet that other person. Why? Because there's another message that must be said, and God deemed it so imperative, he deemed it so necessary, so weighty, so important, that he sends another angel into the vision, and on top of that, what is the instruction? Verse 4, what does the other angel say to him? Run, not walk. Run, run, not go. You got to run, sprint. That's how important this message is going to be. Run to tell, as verse 4 says, speak to that young man, that is Zechariah, the prophet. So what's so important? That you would interrupt your own message, send another angel, and command people not just to go, but to run. What could be so pressing? What could be so amazing? What takes a promise that is faithful and unchanging and makes it beyond that? Verse 4, the rest of it says this. Here's the first part. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. That's the first thing. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. To be clear, there's a lot of prophecies that talk about how Israel will have lots of people and lots of cattle in the end times. Isaiah 49, verse 19, it says this, that they will take the desolate land and make it into a paradise, and it will be too crammed for people to dwell there. Jeremiah 30, verses 18 and 19 say the same thing, as well as Jeremiah 31, 24. In Isaiah 54, it says, extend the boundaries of Jerusalem, keep extending them, and ask yourself, where did all these children come from? Why? Because the whole land will be filled with people. The whole city will be filled with people. So the idea here in verse 4, that there will be a multitude of men and a multitude of cattle within it, that's already known. That's saying nothing new. They knew that there would be a time when there would be such safety for Israel, that there would be a population explosion and prosperity like you've never seen before. They knew that. So what is new It's the first phrase. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. Now we say, okay, you don't have walls on a city. That's that's nice. You don't have one less permit to get for construction. Pretty convenient. But this is not just speaking of the fact that Jerusalem won't have walls. That's true. This is talking about a kind of city. We have this terminology in English. 
We talk about metropolis. We talk about suburbs. We talk about towns. We talk about villages. We talk about rural areas and farming communities. We talk about that kind of language. This in Hebrew is the same idea. It doesn't just say the phrase, no walls. It says a specific kind of city, a kind of city, and let's be clear here, Jerusalem in all of its history never was. Jerusalem always had walls. From the very moment we have ever excavated and observed Jerusalem, it has had walls always walls. David has to get through fortifications and walls. David builds walls. Hezekiah builds walls. There are walls in the intermediate period uh, between the Old and New Testament. There are Herodian walls in the New Testament period. There are Ottoman walls. There are always walls. Jerusalem always has walls. It's, It's a given. In Nehemiah's day, in Zechariah's day, they were rebuilding walls. But what Zechariah prophesies here is this. One day, Jerusalem will be a city like it's never been in all its history. It'll be a totally different city, a totally different kind of city. Because of its prosperity, because of how many people are in it, it can never have walls. It needs every square inch, square millimeter of space to make sure that people can live there and commerce can take place. And all you will see are just people filling the area. Speaking of which, what's fascinating is that in Hebrew, the word inhabited without walls is in the plural. The idea is as if Jerusalem is multiple unwalled cities. Why? Because Jerusalem is so big. It'll just go on for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And all you will see is Jerusalem. And all you will see is it filled with people. And all you will see is it filled with prosperity and peace. That's all you'll see. It'll be that kind of city. Even today, Jerusalem has a clear boundary line. It is marked by walls. And you can see it. If you get high enough up or at a certain vantage point, you can see the outline of Jerusalem. It's very definable. But in the future, there will be a day when that will no longer be true for the first time in their history. And you say, why would that encourage God's people Here are the people in Zechariah's day. They're endeavoring to build a temple. Later on, they will endeavor to build a city. And it's a feeble city. It's a small city. And what is God saying? Keep building. Because one day I'll transform this so that it'll be the largest city you've ever seen in your life. The most prosperous city you've ever seen in your life. It'll be like that. God never lets people's work go in vain. God never lets his work go in vain. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. After all, if you stop and think about it, a city without walls is a target. I mean, how are you going to get protection from the bad guys? So verse 5. And here is something even more special. Indeed, I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her. Don't miss the pronoun I in verse 5. It's amazing. Small details. The word I or I will be is actually the exact same phrase in Exodus 3 of I am who I am. It's It's the same opening phrase. 
What God is saying in Zechariah 2, verse 5, is this. There will be a day when I'll transform Jerusalem so that it'll be a city like you've never seen before, like it's never been in all of history. And at that moment, I will be Yahweh to you in full. I will be everything that Yahweh means. All the richness of his faithfulness, all the richness of his relationship, all the richness of his covenant, all the richness of his personal relationship, because Yahweh is his personal name, that will be fulfilled. And you say, how so? Simple. Because God will actually be so present with his people, he will be a what? What does the text say? A wall of fire. Now, there are several things to note about this wall of fire. For one, before, in the book of Exodus, God dwelled in a pillar of what? Fire. That will be all the time. They will have his presence like that. They will be surrounded with him. And also, if you really think about it, ask in resolving the issue of whether or not there would be a vulnerability to the city, having a wall of fire is a very good defense. You can run into a stone wall, and it'll hurt. You run into a wall of fire, you're dead. This is good. God says, I'll protect you, but I won't just protect you in the most glorious way. I'll be with you. I'll be with you like that. Sometimes we wonder, because God is invisible, we cannot see him. We wonder, where is he sometimes? Israel will never wonder that again. And all those who live in the millennial kingdom, they will see his presence. You will see miles and miles of people, but you will also see the brilliant glory of God surrounding his own. And not just surrounding his own. Look at the rest of verse 5. I will be the glory in her midst. God will not just be around his people. He will be where? In the middle of his people. If, you are, if God is in the middle of you and he's around you, it's as if he's hugging you. And God says, you will always be in my embrace. And that won't just be metaphorical. It'll be true. Because Israel, Jerusalem, what its glory will be is that it'll be surrounded by the very presence of God brilliant light within, epicenter of that, the future millennial temple, and a wall of fire without on the outside of the boundary of the city, and the people inside, and all they can see as they turn 360 around is the glory of God. They're just surrounded by that. And now do you see why Yahweh says, at that time, I am? Because he will be. Because he will be. And you say, wow, that's a great metaphor. Will it really be like that? Yeah, it really will. And it's not just me who believes so. Not to kind of shoot my own testimony in the foot, but even Satan understands this. You say, Satan understands this? Yes, Satan. You heard me right, Satan. The devil read this and he, and he understood it. You say, how so? Because in Ezekiel chapter 38, 11, Ezekiel 38, 11, it says this, that at the time of the Antichrist, the Antichrist will attempt to make Jerusalem a city unwalled. Why? Because the Antichrist is attempting to do what only Christ can do. So even Satan understands this has to happen this way. 
Even he understands that there will be a literal fulfillment of this. But what he doesn't understand, because he is Satan, and what he tries to do will never happen. Because no antichrist and no man and no devil can do what Christ alone will accomplish on that final day. This is exactly what will happen. There will be a time in the future where if you go to Jerusalem and you look at it, maybe you could even look at it from space. You can't die, I mean, if we're glorified, so you know, float up there. And you will see a wall of fire and a brilliant light of glory in Jerusalem. And God says this, don't you get it, Zechariah? I'm not just going to give you what I promised you. I'm going to give you more than you ask or think. That's what our God does. And think of it this way. If and since our God, he takes one promise, a simple promise. I will return to Jerusalem. I will rebuild the temple. I will, you can measure it. It'll still be the same measurements. And then he tells you, and there's so much more I haven't told you of how beautiful it will be. What do you think he'll do for all his promises that he's given to us? You know what's astounding is that sometimes when we think of the promises of God revealed in Scripture, we just understand them so generally. He has given us details revealed in Scripture, unveiled and articulated in the good book. And he has said, this is all that I'm going to do. But we just, we just think about them on the general level. And that's enough because that's encouraging to our soul. And then you study them. And then you see, like we have seen here, that there are so many details, so many intricacies, and that just deepens our comfort and consolation all the more. But then what this text reminds us is that God has not revealed sometimes all beyond the promises and deeper within the promises that he has articulated in his word. And that is what he has in store for his people. If you are already astounded by what God has given to us in his word, you haven't seen anything yet. That's Zechariah's point. You have not seen anything yet. And there will be a day when we do. And every promise that is made in Scripture will be fulfilled in ways that go beyond what we can ask or think. And that is the hope of the believer. That is the hope of the believer. We do truly have supreme promises. We have supreme promises. Well, having given that vision, having provided that information, the prophet receives more revelation from God. And in verse 6, there is an exhortation from Yahweh himself, and that moves the first point of supreme promises to the second point of sanctification. Sanctification, and we see that in verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. What do you do with those promises? How do you respond to those promises. It's simple. Sanctification, as I said earlier, if you want to get out of the world, if you want to leave worldliness, if you want to stop being friends with the world, as James says it, then you need to think about the world to come. Then you need to think about the world to come. And that is precisely why in chapter 2, verse 6, Zechariah says, Ho there, flee from the land of the north. Having given Israel's destiny, having shown them what awaits for them, glory upon glory, the embrace of the entire presence and majesty of God, God says to remnant Israel, 
get out of the land of the north. You say, where's the land of the north besides being in the north? It is the specific land of Babylon. It is the specific land of Assyria. It is where Israel was exiled. Israel needs to come home. They need to come home both physically and they need to come home spiritually. It's both and. It's both and. And that's often how sanctification works, is it not? It isn't just sometimes good enough in a sense to spiritually want to and desire to deal with our sin. Sometimes that spiritual desire, as good as it is, it compels and demands something physical, that we separate ourselves, that we flee iniquity, that we flee temptation. And that is what God is exhorting to the people of Israel. Israel, you are hanging out in Babylon. Get out of there. Get out of there physically. Get out of there spiritually. Separate from that. You should have nothing to do with that whatsoever. Like we hear from our own Lord's words in Matthew, if, if your hand causes you to stumble, what? Cut it off. This is the radical amputation that we are speaking of. On every level, whatever causes us to stumble, Israel, on whatever level, Babylon is causing you and ensnaring you and entrapping you. Exit out. Get out of there both physically and spiritually. Why? Verse 6, For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens. The language of dispersion is the language of exile. It's the language of judgment. Why would you stay in a place in your life, whether you're Israel back then or us now, why would you stay in a place of your life that you knew was under the wrath of God? That's what sin is. Why would you do that to yourself? That doesn't make any sense. Get out of there. Likewise, when our Lord says, as the four winds of the heaven, if you look up the phrase four winds of heaven, this is not only language of being dispersed far away, that's part of it, but in a time of violence. Daniel 7 talks about it. It's a time, it's an area of violence. It's a time, area of the whirlwind. It's an area where things are just swirling around you in chaos. Why would you stay in a situation that is under the wrath of God and dangerous for you? harmful for you. Why would you do that? Get out. Get out. Leave. Part of sanctification is understanding your sin the way God understands your sin. We often think, well, sin, I know it's kind of bad, and it's wrong, and it, and it offends God, but it kind of looks good, and there aren't many consequences. Part of doing sanctification is to understand this. Why in the world would you put yourself in a burning building and think that that's okay, and just want to hang out there because nothing bad has happened just yet. No one thinks that way. God says, you are under wrath when you're in sin, and you are in amazing danger when you sin. Why would you stay there for a second longer than you have to? Get out. Part of sanctification is departing and amputating yourself and disconnecting yourself with sin. But it's not just turning from sin, it's turning to righteousness. Verse 7. This is sanctification as well. Woe, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. The word escape doesn't just mean to get out of danger. It means to get somewhere safe. You do realize that that's a key part of escaping something, yes? Uh, it reminds me of a time uh, when some friends were camping 
and they told me the story of how they tried to escape a tornado. And by escaping a tornado, they ran into a place that had a flash flood. Well, that doesn't really help the situation at all. All that to say is, when you escape, you escape to someplace safe. When you escape, you escape to someplace what you're supposed to be doing. And where is that? You were living with the daughter of Babylon. Every time almost the phrase daughter of Babylon is used, it is used in context of their destruction. Get out of the place that's so dangerous, but get to the place, which is what? Verse 7, woe to who? Zion. Zion. Get back to Jerusalem. Not just get back to Jerusalem. Get back to Jerusalem as Zion, as this eschatological city as this final place which will worship God, as this place that will be surrounded and inundated with his glory. Get there and be that. John reminds us, those who have this hope purify themselves. Peter reminds us that those who have this hope, they hasten it. They live so much in anticipation, they are being conformed to it. Even those with children, if we we know If they know they're getting some kind of toy or gift, they prepare the way for it. Everything's about it. And they just keep talking to you about that, that object until you break down and buy it to them two weeks early. <coughs> I've never done that. But, uh, <coughs> and they, and they you know, set up a new place on their shelf. They never clean their room, but yes, they will clean it to make sure that they accumulate more things in their room. But in any case, the idea is we know when we have such expectation and such anticipation of something so magnificent in the future, it starts to shape your life in the here and now. And this is what God is commanding in Zechariah. You want to know how to escape worldliness? It's simple. Think about the world to come and get your life aligned with that. Become Zion early and start to yearn for the time when God's glory will appear. Start to yearn for the time when you will sing praise to him. Start to yearn for the time when you can commune with him face to face. Start to yearn for the time when you will say thank you to him and you will experience the glory of his presence and him making everything right and conform to the brilliance of his perfect light. Start to anticipate that. And when you do that, you'll become godly. You'll become godly. You want to escape worldliness? Think about the world to come. And what assures us of all of this is the fact that we see in verses 8 and 9 that God's promises are sure. Verse 8, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which have taken you as spoil. Here's a question as we read this phrase. After glory he... He is capitalized because he refers to Yahweh of hosts. That's confirmed in verse 9. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Okay, so Yahweh is sending. He has sent me. Who's the one speaking in verse 8? For thus says Yahweh of hosts. If you're paying attention here, Yahweh is sending Yahweh. Yahweh is sending Yahweh. You do realize that that is a very weird kind of action for any normal person to do. How do you go? I mean, what, what, what are we talking about here? How do you send yourself? What we have here in verse 8 is a clear declaration of the fact that Yahweh sends his son. This is about the Messiah. And the Messiah is clearly here called who? Yahweh. Yahweh sends Yahweh. 
It's just like in Genesis chapter 19 where it says this, Yahweh rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah with Yahweh. It is the same thing here. Yahweh is sending Yahweh. It is no different than in Exodus 14 where it says Yahweh from heaven looked through the pillar of cloud, but the pillar of cloud we've already established is who? Yahweh. How can Yahweh be looking through Yahweh? How can Yahweh be raining fire and brimstone from heaven with Yahweh on earth? It's the same way that Yahweh sends Yahweh in verse 8 because God sends his son. And by the way, now that should key in your mind everything in the New Testament where it talks about sending. It talks about sending. Think about this passage. The father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Did you hear the word send there? Why? Because Yahweh sends Yahweh. Think about this in John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All of that sending language is Yahweh sending Yahweh. That's what's going on. This is Trinitarian in that regard. But do not miss the main point of Zechariah 2.8. How certain are God's promises to his people? He sends his own what? Son. They're sure. They're sure. And it's not only because he sends his own son, that's not the only guarantee of their certainty. It is that he sent his son against the nations which have taken you as spoil, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of your eye is your pupil. If you are poked in the eye, you have an instinctive, extreme reaction. Have you noticed this? This is the beauty of wearing glasses. (laughs) Those who harm Israel have touched the apple of God's eye. And God says, I will respond because I do care. You want to know why these promises are sure? It's because of the son of God who secures them. It's because of the love of God and the care of God, which ensures them. And on top of that, verse nine, for behold, I will wave my hand. This is not saying hello. When God waves his hand, when the Messiah, when the Lord Jesus Christ waves his hand, the idea is that he extends his hand of might fully. All of his strength is unveiled. So do you want to know why God's promises are sure? Because he sent his son, because he cares so much, and because he will use his full omnipotent might. And notice, those who took Israel as spoil, now they become what? They will be spoiled. Those who use Israel as slaves, they will be the spoil for their what? Slaves. Everything will be turned around. And it will be so clear and so obvious that when the Messiah does this, then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. It's unquestionable. Everyone knows this has to be Yahweh. Everyone knows this has to be the Messiah, the true one, because no one has that kind of power. And so you want to know what guarantees God's promise? It's that his son, his love, his full power with full clarity will be unveiled and it secures every promise. Our problem at times is that in our society, we make promises and we don't even take them very seriously. That's why if you think about it, you you buy a car and they say, well, this car work. Yes, it'll work, but you need to buy a warranty. So what does the warranty do? Well, it guarantees that what we just told you will be true. (laughs) Then is what you told me true? By the warranty. So the, (laughs) and we are used to people 
thinking like that. And we are used to whenever ever someone makes us a promise, even if it's in writing, we don't really know. We're not really sure it happens. And then God makes us a promise and we apply the same rationale to whatever he says. And we think, well, I don't know if it'll really turn out that way. I don't really know if that's really what he means. I don't really know if it'll really come to that in the end because we keep viewing God like a man and how man in this modern day makes promises. God says this, I've secured everything. You want me to deny my son? You want me to deny my love? Do you want me to deny my power? Do you want me to deny how much I clearly want to do this? If I do all that, then the promise won't happen. But I've secured it in every way possible. It'll be exactly like this in the end. We need to take a promise like a promise. It's a guarantee. You could think of it simply this way. You are just reading in Zechariah 2 history before it happens. That's it. You're just reading history before it happens. And so if God is so serious about the future, if God is so serious about his promises, then we need to be serious about our sanctification. In context, God says, that's why you need to leave the land of the north. That's why you need to leave Babylon. That's why you need to get out there and become Zion, because this will be your future. So get in line with it now. And if you think this was only for the time of Zechariah, which it was, if you think it's only for that time, though, you're not right. Zechariah 2 is a quote from Isaiah 48, calling all Israel to leave. But if you think, oh, this is only for the people of God of Israel, that's it, you would be mistaken. Because this is announced to the entire world in Revelation 18, same words. It's the call to all. Get out of Babylon. Depart from worldliness. And the only way you can do that is by thinking of the world to come. That's the nature of our sanctification. The more you think about God's promises, the more you will be sanctified. The more you will be sanctified as you anticipate them. Well, here's another response. If you think about God's supreme promises, point one, and you think about how they promote sanctification, departing from worldliness, point two, here's the final point. They also promote, that is God's promises, singing in silence. Singing in silence. Look at verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. What, what should we do in light of this? The text makes it clear. Sing for joy. And if you say, I don't like to sing, that's okay. Verse 13, be what? Silent. Either way works. And we'll see soon enough about what it means to sing and what it means to be silent. This is about worship. If you have all God's promises, it should drive the best worship. You say, how so? Well, let's actually talk about the nature of a specific act of worship that is singing. Verse 10, sing for joy and be glad. The word sing for joy is make a joyful shout. Joyful shout. Ring it out loud. You might say, I'm a baritone, sing loud. I'm a soprano, sing loud. I'm a monotone, sing loud. (laughs) Because it's not just an external action. It is an expression of joy. And notice the next phrase, and be glad. That's an attitude of gladness. It's not just sing loud because you want to break the decibels of the sanctuary that you're in. It's because you have true joy, true happiness. Why? Behold, I'm coming, and I will dwell in your midst. 
we live in a broken world, and our world is seemingly a very set way in its depravity, but you need to know this, Yahweh's coming. It won't always be like this. Yahweh's coming. There's going to be a divine interruption in the affairs of man. It'll change. Yahweh is coming, and he will dwell with us. And when he does, everything will be different. Everything will change. I think that's a good reason to sing, don't you? On top of that, verse 11, and many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day. For Israel, all they saw of the nations was how much they hated Israel and how much they hated God. But there will be a day when the nations, they won't just superficially change. It's not like children when you say, say sorry. And the only sorry that they have is their words. Everything else. The manner of what they say, their heart, their eyes, their body, everything is not sorry. Just the word, sorry, is sorry. That's it. That won't be like the nations. The nations will truly be sorry. The nations will truly love God. And they'll show that from their heart. You know, the word join here is actually the word Levi, where you get Leviticus, where you get the tribe of Levi. These nations will want to be so close to God, they would rather be Levites to him. That's how close they will want to be. And you know what's the most beautiful thing, though? It's not just their conversion. It's not just that for the first time Israel will see this massive revival. It's this, and they will become my people. You know what God could have said to all these nations? Well, tough. You had like 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000 years to repent, and you didn't. A little bit late now. You know, like turning your paper in on, the, on time or late isn't going to be acceptable. They could have said something like that. He could have said, you hated my people. I hate you. End. That's it. But notice what he says. And you will become not just a people, not just you will be spared, not just you will be, you will be delivered from God's wrath, but you're going to be left by yourself. It's you will become what? My people. God says, you'll be my own. Isaiah 19 says that in the days to come, Assyria and Egypt will be my inheritance and my people alongside of Israel. They will have a future. And that'll be glorious for Israel to see, but do you realize this? This is us. Because most of us here are not Jewish. I'm not. (laughs) And we need to remember this. Why sing to God? Because though we doubly didn't deserve to come, we had no promise from him, no guarantee from him that we could ever come to him. He changed us so that we, we who hated him would say, could we be joined to you like a Levite? Could we have that kind of relationship with you? And God says, instead of saying, you don't deserve it, which is true, you shouldn't have it, which is true, he says, you're now my people. I adopt you. That's a reason to sing. That's a reason to sing. You want to know another reason to sing? Verse 12, then Yahweh will inherit Judah. Pay attention to that wording. It does not say Judah inherits Yahweh. That would be true too. And we often think about what we get as reward. And we often think about what we're going to gain. And we often think about how we're going to gain God. And God is our portion. And God is our inheritance. That's absolutely true. That's biblical. You can see that in the Psalms. You can see that in Isaiah. But notice here it says this, Yahweh will inherit Judah. What we sometimes forget is that we are a gift to God's son. We are a gift 
to God's son. And that God will transform us. The nations who want to join with him, Israel who will be redeemed by him, and God will give him to his son, to honor his son. We are the son's reward. And Isaiah says, and he will see it and he will be satisfied. And not only that, speaking of Isaiah, notice then Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion. The word portion is used in Isaiah 53, and it says this, he will divide his portion with the strong. The word portion is the idea not just of reward, but recognition. Recognition for your work. There will be a day when the whole world will be given as a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole world will know that that's because he saved them. That's it. That will be the moment. And you will see the son so honored. And when you see him so honored, those who love him will have every reason to sing because we love him. And there is no greater joy than to see the one you loved honored. That's why we will sing. So we will sing for a lot of reasons. And the more you think about heaven and the more you think about the millennial kingdom, you will sing. The land will be holy because he'll transform it. And he'll choose Jerusalem again because it will be exactly the way it always should have been. But if you're wondering, is it all singing? No, verse 13, it's silence as well. Silence, why? Because those who are silent cannot oppose God. Those who are silent are in awe of God. And that's part of worship as well. Don't always feel like you have to sing. You can be silent. That's okay. But in this case, the silence is because God is aroused from his holy habitation. No one will be able to stop Yahweh. You want to know if these promises are coming true? They are. God is going to intervene from heaven to earth, and there will be no stopping him. In fact, everyone at that moment will just be what? Silent. In Revelation 8, it says this, there was silence in heaven. Why? Because everyone's getting ready, and no one can oppose when our God will act. There will be silence. And so if you're thinking about these promises of God, that he will do above and beyond what we can think, and you're thinking how to respond to them, you sing for joy. It drives your worship. You're silent in awe, and you're sanctified as you depart from worldliness and you go and conform to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is all that? It's simple, simple. Supreme promises lead to sanctification because if you want to escape the world, if you want to get rid of the world, think of the world to come. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your word. May our minds meditate on these promises. May our minds meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in these promises and all that he will accomplish, not only for us, but for the people of Israel. And may it be that those who are captured by this hope purify themselves so that we would be the right inheritance for our God, for our King and his Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.